This is KXSF 102.5 FM, streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm. And you're tuned in to Spark with Kelly Marlowe. Informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Today I'm talking with Diane Tober, a medical anthropologist and researcher at UCSF in the areas of family planning, egg and sperm donation, and reproductive health policy. We will be talking about the growing lucrative industry of egg donorship and the important women's health considerations tied to it. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Diane. Thank you for having me. So with the advances in reproductive technology, women are donating their eggs to aspiring parents and it's become a huge industry. Do you have statistics that you can share with with us about the growth of this market? Yes, this is really interesting to me. So the Center for Disease Control does have data on how many live births per year are created from donor eggs. So for example, in 2000, there were about 10,800 donor egg created live births um, per year. By 2016, that number doubled to about 20, over 24,000. But we don't have actual data on the number of people who donate their eggs or the number of egg donation cycles an individual donor undergoes. So they are tracking the, the live births created from donor eggs, but they are not tracking the egg donors themselves. And this is also really interesting because in 2013, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine lifted off the experimental label for egg freezing. And the CDC is collecting data on the number of people who freeze their eggs per year, but not the number of people who donate their eggs per year. And since 2013, egg freezing has increased 138 percent um, between 2013 and 2016, the last, the last year we have uh, the numbers for but um, we don't know exactly how many people are donating their eggs per year. We only know how, how many people are freezing their eggs, how many live births there are created from donor eggs. Okay, so the the eggs are being frozen could be egg from egg donors. We just don't no. know for sure. No, no, those are people who freeze their eggs for fertility preservation. Yeah. So. Like if, if a person decides I want to, I'm 28 years old and I want to freeze my eggs and use them when I'm 35. Okay. You know, what they call fertility preservation. They only track how many eggs are being frozen. So we. No. What about the clinics are freezing the eggs for their patients? Are those being tracked as well? Okay. Um, I, I should make a distinction here. So there's some people who donate their eggs. Okay. So those would be called egg donors. There's some people who. Um, might be freezing their eggs for themselves to use later. Now, some egg donors, donor eggs will be frozen, right, for later use, for somebody else to use, like for egg banks. But when I'm talking about egg freezing, I'm talking about people undergoing fertility preservation. So I'm a patient. I go to a clinic. I want to freeze my own eggs. Those things are being tracked. What isn't being tracked is when an egg donor's eggs are frozen or when an egg donor goes through an egg donation cycle. None of that is being followed. Okay. It sounds like they're more, sense. yeah, that makes sense. Okay. 
It sounds like the more aspiring parents looking for egg donors as well as more practitioners who are looking for them to help the parents. Right, right. So, so you know, egg donation has been around for over, oh, well, over 25 years now, and um, it's been growing. Obviously, it's, it's, it's grown substantially in the past 25 years. Um, the number of people who undergo egg don- who use donor eggs to create their families has increased, and the population has increased. So it used to be, for example, it was predominantly married heterosexual couples that were, or sometimes single women, but usually married heterosexual couples that were looking for egg donors to create their families. Often in the case of a woman, for example, for, by her cancer treatment or having uh, premature ovarian failure, things like that. Um, and then in around 2015 or so, a little earlier than that, many other countries uh, stopped allowing international adoptions. So China, Russia, and so on cut off international adoption. And it used to be that a lot of same-sex couples and individuals would go and adoptions started closing down. You started seeing a huge boom in same-sex male couples and single men, and to some degree same-sex female couples, but usually more uh, the men using egg donors and surrogates to create their families. And so you see a dramatic increase in the number of egg donations per year or the number of live births with donor egg per year since uh, international. It's like there's an increase in egg donors as well then. Exactly. And I'm hearing that they're paid a lot of money to donate a cycle of eggs. How much are we talking about? It depends. Um, if somebody wants to, to, you know, find an egg donor to create a family, um, some different clinics have different programs. So, you know, on a recipient parent is going to pay about $10,000 for the donor alone, maybe $7,000, uh, depending upon the donor. Um, they'll probably pay the cycle, the, the clinic over twenty-six or so thousand dollars per cycle, sometimes much higher than that, depending upon the clinic. And then some clinics also do offer uh, what they call banked eggs or frozen eggs, and they can buy those at a more affordable cost, but at that point, they only get maybe, say, a batch of five eggs rather than all the eggs the donor produces at a substantially reduced cost. So usually those those kinds of cycles usually run about $18,000. Interesting. So, so it yeah, sounds like so the... Go ahead. It sounds like the agency you go to determines how much you're going to get paid. It varies. So there's, there's agencies and there's clinics, okay? So some people just go directly to the clinic, and the clinic might have its own internal egg donation program. So they have their own internal recruiters. They have their own internal database of egg donors. You go to your doctor at this fertility clinic, and they help you, you know, they show you who's, they give you access to the database. You choose your donor. You keep it all in-house. Um, there also are... Another alternative people sometimes go, go through are the egg donation agencies. And the agencies are sort of a liaison between the donors and the clinics and the recipient parents. And they can help facilitate all those, all those um, processes. And agencies also will get an agency fee. Um, different agencies may potentially try to recruit um, or appeal to different kinds of attendant parents. So, for example, there's an agency I know of that focuses on Jewish egg donors um, for their Jewish clients. There's another agency I know of that focuses on Asian egg donors for their Asian clients. Um, there's some agencies that, that focus on what they call, like, elite donors that have um, 
Ivy League educations, for example. So there's different kinds of agencies that, that target different niche markets. And it sounds like usually these profiles of attractive, educated women with certain traits that one can mm-hmm. choose from. Mm-hmm. Right. When you were talking about Ivy League women, it's kind of interesting, right? It's almost like you're kind of matching to what your desire child will look like and how smart the child will more likely to be and so on. Yes. And, and one genetics counselor I, I interviewed once, I asked her like how, because she, she does genetics counseling for her recipient parents to help find you know donors to make sure they don't have a genetic disease and so on. And I asked her, you know, what, what, what are intended parents looking for? And she basically said, well, they're looking for someone like themselves, but only better. You know, <laughs> so slightly taller, slightly more attractive, more intelligent or more educated or at least as educated and those kinds of things. So usually, usually like I said, they're looking for somebody like themselves, um, somebody that they feel like they could relate to. I often hear um, intended parents say things like, well, we wanted to feel like we had a connection to that donor. So sometimes they don't necessarily look just for looks or, or um, you know, high, high uh, SAT scores or IQ scores or so on. There might be something else in that profile that speaks to them. But other times, you know, there are specific traits that somebody might look for. So, you know, it's all, it's all variable according to the individual. Um, but, you know, so, th- so there are these different sorts of facets to the process. But what's also interesting is that it seems to be targeted at, let's say, college female students um, right. or a little bit older, right? And that seems to be the market. And they may be struggling with paying for college or their like, expenses. So then it's a very attractive offer because they feel like they're helping and an aspiring parent. So that seems like a good thing. And at the same time, they can support themselves. Right. So I have a study now with over 500 egg donors in it. And I've interviewed about 120 of them, and 500 or so have, have taken surveys. And um, so a lot of egg donors have told me things like, um, well, it, it seemed like a win-win. I could make some money and help somebody at the same time. Um, and for the most part, that, that seems to work out. Um, uh, student debt or tuition costs or huge reason behind uh, women's decisions to donate eggs or people's decisions to donate eggs. And I should add the caveat in there, not all egg donors in my study identify as women. Some There are a couple who do identify as transgender men who donated eggs before trans, to pay for, like, for example, top surgery. So you know, we have to think more broadly regarding who donates eggs and who receives eggs. But in any case, um, there, is a, there is a high number, there is a high degree of, of students with heavy debt, tuition costs, and so on, and and doing this predominantly to make ends meet, but also, you know, to help others. Um, I know one person, though, who did, for example, an excessive number of donation cycles. She did 17 donation cycles, and, and it was pretty much all to pay off the student debt. Wow. Yeah. It looks like it's being marketed to them in a way that's appealing, that's not something that's invasive, and you're helping uh, aspiring parents, but it's mm-hmm. it is it is invasive, right? It's not it's not something that you your body just recovers from and moves on, right? It it is a, a very involved process. So you know, I hear a lot of people equating it to something like donating blood, and it's not like donating blood at all. Um, 
basically a, a, an egg donor is put on um, hormones for several weeks to help stimulate the ovaries to produce more eggs. So in a normal monthly cycle, you will produce one mature egg, and then that will pass, you know, before or, or get fertilized. Um, and then, you know, when you menstruate, that that uh, goes away. Um, in an egg donation cycle, the, the injectable hormones um, make your ovaries, stimulate your ovaries to create a lot more eggs than that normal one. So I've heard don't, some donors are producing, stimulated to produce maybe 10 or 20 eggs. I've got other donors in my study that have, produ- that are stimulated, have been stimulated to produce 80 eggs on a single cycle. Wow. So there's a huge range of what people are producing. And that range of the numbers of eggs that are produced is pretty well correlated to the, the hormone dosages in addition to how their body responds. So, for example, if a donor goes in to um, have an exam before she starts her cycle, the doctor can do a vaginal u- ultrasound and see about how many eggs she's predicted to produce. So she, they could say it's called what's called a, a resting antrophological count. So if somebody has what's called a high resting antrophological count, you know they're going to be a big, what they call a big producer, right? And you know that if somebody's going to produce a lot of eggs, you should be more conservative with the dosages. But what I see happening is, is especially in the United States donors, I have donors from around the world, but especially in the U.S. donors, they're, they're stimulated to produce a large quantity of eggs, usually over 30. And that's much more aggressive than what I'm seeing in some other countries. So that's, um, so that's from the hormone injections. Then they take a trigger shot about 48 hours before the surgery to release the eggs from the follicles. And then about 48 hours later or so, they undergo uh, surgery under anesthesia with an ultrasound-guided needle that goes up through the vaginal wall, pierces to the ovary, sucks each of the little eggs out of each of the follicles, and then goes to the other ovary to, to repeat the process on the other side. Then they go into recovery for about 30 or 40 minutes. They're waking up from anesthesia. And then about an hour later, they go home. Now, some donors, most donors... Um, go through this process and they might rest for a couple of days or a day or two after the process and, and return to normal pretty quickly and others uh, might not return to normal as quickly. So for example, one of the most common complications is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and in its most severe form, it can be life-threatening. So it's, it's not a, a very simple process every single time. And a donor could have an easy time one time and then maybe go to a different doctor or have a different set of medications or something. And then the second time or the, another time down the road have uh, more complications following. And what about the long-term effects? Well, that's one of the things we don't know. And that's why I've been collecting data on egg donors for the at least the past five years. And I'm in the process of trying to design uh, or designing a prospective study to start tracking donor health over time so we can begin to have a better idea. So far, they say that there is no long-term effect, but without the research having been done, it's really hard to say, you know, what the long-term effects are. And I do have donors in my study that have have later on experienced infertility. I have donors in my study that have later on experienced um, reproductive or estrogen-positive cancers or endometriosis or cysts, but we don't know yet if there's a causal connection between the two. So it's definitely something that needs to be investigated. How can that happen? How can that happen, the the investigation? Yes. How can we get that study going? 
I, I, well, I need about a million dollars for a five-year study. Mm. And I can get it going. Well, that's uh, what's so. interesting is like if it's such a huge industry, there's so many women um, donating their eggs and there's so many aspiring parents. Why aren't there studies being done on the impact that yeah. this has? I mean, that's a very good question, and it's a question that I've been struggling with for the past six years. I do have a National Science Foundation grant that covers a portion of my work that compares egg donation in the United States and Spain, and I've got that grant for the next three years. Um, but what I, what I need to get um, is a, a solid five- to ten-year grant that's going to be uh, looking at uh, to do a prospective longitudinal study, and those kinds of projects are very costly. Um, and so one is the, the amount of money that's needed, and the second is sort of where's the motivation going to come from. So, for example, I'm looking at um, government funding, so maybe through the National Institutes of Health, for example. Well, they have a fertility and infertility division, but that's focusing on people's experiences with infertility or, or ways to, um, you know, cure infertility and so on. Then there's another division that's focusing, like, in the, within the NICHD, within the National Institutes of uh, Child Health and Development, for example, on Alzheimer's. So they receive government funds to focus on different aspects of health, which is fantastic, but there's really nobody at the top that's saying, aha, we need to put some money towards research on, on the effects of medications and this process on egg donors. It, it needs to enter into the consciousness first before it can translate into funding. And that's where I've had the challenges of trying to figure out, okay, how do I make this project meet the funding programs uh, in order to get this funded to move it forward? Well, first of all, it's a very lucrative industry. My understanding is most of it is paying cash. There's insurance that pays. There's, uh, there is some cash payment. There is some... Um, you know, credit cards, people put money on their credit cards. Uh, you know, they might finance, they might take out a second mortgage on their house or third mortgage on their house to finance it. There's different ways people come up with financing mm. to pay for it. There's also a big, huge international industry. So we were, especially before COVID-19, there was a huge influx of people from China coming to the United States to get egg donors and surrogates here. And that was, from what I understand, a predominantly cash payment. Um, uh, COVID-19 has put a big squash on a lot of the international travel for egg donation and surrogacy, but it does, it, it is starting to pick back up again. Actually, even also a number of insurance agencies that are growing, specifically focusing on, on funding these kinds of pro procedures, uh, predominantly for women with sort of like a feminist uh, perspective of take control of your fertility. And that's specifically for eggs, for people to freeze their own eggs, less so for egg donors. But it, it is an interesting industry. Pointing or going back to China, I hear that egg donations are illegal in many countries and therefore that's why they're coming to the U.S. Yeah. So there are, there are many countries where egg donation is illegal or, or very highly regulated. And that's one of the reasons why I'm looking at egg donation in the United States and Spain. So Spain has a very regulated system of egg donation where um, donors can only be paid 1,100 euros, no more than that per cycle. Um, they, can, they can only produce six children born from their eggs in a single sort of uh, geographical area, so basically per, in, in the country. So they can produce up to six children in Spain, six children in France, for example, six children in the U.K., but they don't have a limit on the number of egg donation cycles. 
Um, there, the physicians choose the donors as opposed to here where intended parents will choose the donors. So that changes the, the whole way in which people are selected according to different kinds of criteria. So, so different countries do have different regulations surrounding payments, surrounding whether it's legal or not. And people do come to the United States from other countries in order to access uh, egg donation here. And there's one of the things that also about the United States, because we don't have a cap on payment, there's a huge supply of people wanting to, to provide eggs um, for other people's children because, you know, the, the, of the financial incentives. Another thing that we have specifically in California is very lax laws surrounding gestational surrogacy. So California also becomes a hub for people seeking out surrogacy in combination with egg donors. And in Spain, for example, um, surrogacy is, is not allowed by law. So you have a number of, of people from Spain um, coming here to, to get egg donors and surrogates, or from Italy as well. Um, people from Australia will come here quite frequently for egg donors and, and sometimes egg donors and surrogates. So even if it's, if it's allowed in their home country, there might not be a huge supply of egg donors because of the limitations on compensation. From what I understand, it's it has to be called a donation because you can't technically sell human tissue here. That is true. You can't technically sell human tissue. At the same time, um, you know, the medical term for donor has to do with taking a body, uh, you know, like an organ, a tissue, a marrow, or a cell from one person and transferring it to another. So sometimes we might refer to egg provider because they're being paid, but at the same time, donation in the medical language means to transfer something from one body to another. Why is there a lack of regulation in fertility? And an interesting question. It, it, like you said, it is a very lucrative uh, industry. At the same time, not necessarily that there's a lack of regulation across the board, but there is inconsistent regulation from state to state. So, uh, for example, in, in California, surrogacy is allowed, whereas in New York, up until this year, surrogacy, paid surrogacy was not allowed. Egg donation, paid egg donation is allowed here. It's not allowed in some other states. Um, what, what there is, however, though, is a lack of evidence-based policy because we don't have the research on egg donors to help inform the policy. And that's one of the things that I'm hoping my work will ultimately do is help inform well, what, would, what would be good policy given the data that we have on egg donors' experiences. Um, I would like to see some things uh, better regulated. So I would like to see, for example, regulations um, instead of just guidelines on the number of cycles it's safe for a donor to undergo. I would like to see more controls over the numbers of eggs that are being produced, uh, the kinds of protocols that are being used. I think there's things that could definitely be improved about the industry in order to protect and improve the process for everybody, including egg donors as part of that process. Um, and again, you know, I think that there is a challenge when it comes to specifically reproductive politics in the United States. When you start to regulate reproduction, whether it's egg donation, surrogacy, and so on, then you start to, feed, to sort of bleed into abortion politics. And so there's some concern, especially among many feminist researchers and feminist scholars, that if we uh, regulate egg donation, well, then, then how are we going to argue against regulating abortion, even though 
medical regulations happen all the time. So I think that the United States is an interesting landscape because all these different kinds of policies bleed into each other um, surrounding female bodies. But at the same time, the women are not being educated about the possible risk involved. Correct. Correct. And, and that's something that I think that my, my work will really contribute to is, is let's figure out how to improve the informed consent process, both in short, short-term and long-term emotional and physical risks and benefits so that people can be better informed. So that, I think, is a, is a huge gap that needs to be filled in terms of, um, you know, better care and better regulation and better information for egg donors. Are there ethical concerns tied to the relationship of the child or egg? Well, yeah. I mean, and then I've talked to a number of donor-conceived people as well. And, you know, one of the things that I've heard from donor-conceived people is that you lose a part of yourself when you don't know where you come from. And and I think that that's really important. And there is no, um, I mean, people are using increasingly 23andMe and Ancestry.com and all the GED match, all these t- kinds of technologies to search for genetic kin and finding their donors, finding their donor-conceived children and making and finding their donor half-siblings and making these connections. Um, and I think that there also needs to be more focus on the rights of the donor-conceived children in these transactions because that's really left out of the equation. And and it used to be, or it, you know, before the 23andMe kinds of, of uh, you know, direct-to-consumer ancestry testing, people thought, well, you know, nobody's going to donate their eggs if they, if their privacy can't be um, protected. And what I'm finding with the egg donors that I'm interviewing um, and surveying is that that's really not true. I, most of the donors in my study actually do want to have uh, their identities released to the children, at least at some point, whether it's in the future or immediately, or have open donations, um, things like that. So, and they are concerned about who's receiving my eggs. You know, they are concerned about the children that are being raised. And I especially see those concerns change over time. So somebody who's 19 and, and donating their eggs might think, feel very differently at 30 or 40 or 50 or after they have their own kids. And, um, and I think that definitely those, the significance of biological connections is something that can't be ignored. What would be your advice for women who are considering egg donation or becoming egg donor? Yeah, well, first advice is make sure you do, you know, your own independent research and and don't go just by what the clinic or agency tells you um, or what the egg donor recruiter tells you. I would talk, if you're thinking about becoming an egg donor, I would talk to your your own, you know, OBGYN or your own doctor who doesn't have a an interest in um, in the process to see if, if, he, if he or she thinks that's a good um, thing to undergo given your own health condition. So, for example, people who have endometriosis, for example, which is estrogen positive, might not want to be egg donors because endometriosis can be exacerbated by um, fertility drugs, by, by extra estrogen in the body. People with a family history of cancer might not want to donate their eggs because we don't know to what degree the fertility drugs might um, exacerbate an underlying or pre-existing or genetic conditions for cancer. Um, so those are things that I think need to be, um, we need to really uh, think about. Another thing would be to advocate for oneself. So 
um, do the research, ask questions from the doctor. Well, how many eggs do you plan on retrieving from me per cycle? What kinds of hormone dosages are you planning on putting me on? What are the hormone, uh, the medications you're going to put me on? Then research all the hormones. Go, you can go to WebMD, for example, and look up the different types of medications and, that are going to be used and see what the side effects are. Um, one of the things that I, I've just we've just uh, finished put it, um, looking at the data on is the kind of trigger shot that's going to be used. There's some one kind of trigger shot called HCG and another kind called Lupron, an agonist trigger, and then there's a combined trigger. Well, o- ovarian hyperstimulation rates are significantly higher and more severe with HCG triggers. So you want to make sure, you know, what if you're going to be a high responder, what kind of trigger shot you're going to use. You want to make sure you have your legal basis covered, like what happens to you if you lose an ovary? How much do you get money for that? You know, do you have uh, financial? What kind of medical care can you receive for follow-up? Uh, for how long? Uh, most egg donation contracts will put that in for maybe a couple of weeks, up to a month post-donation that you're covered medically. Well, maybe you want to negotiate to have it covered to be covered for a year or more. Uh, you know. These all these things are negotiated, you know, once they have decided that they want you. There's also a group that I've been working with to help recruit egg donors for my study called We Are Egg Donors. And they're sort of an online community of, of people who have been current and former egg donors. You might want to get in contact with them, weareeggdonors.com, and um, listen to other people's stories and other people's experiences. But definitely do the research. Make sure that you look out for yourself um, medically and legally. Ask a lot of questions. And um, and don't be afraid to say no, or don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. And and even if you sign up and you change your mind, you c- you can change your mind. Um, and I think that's important for any patient, whether it's an egg donor patient or any kind of patient, is to really be well informed and to really self advocate. And feel free to contact me at eggdonorresearch.org, and people can contact me through the website. Thank you for sharing your research and joining me on Spark today, Diane. Absolutely.